Hey, I'm Phil, host of Game Economist Cast. I went to GDC for the first time this year. It was an absolute blast. When I was on the Deconstructor Fun podcast last week, I described it as something of a high school reunion meets speed dating conference centered around TED Talks. There's a lot of groundhogging, random bump-ins with people on the streets, some of those sign-my-yearbook-hags interactions, how-can-I-help-you type interactions. You never know who you're going to meet at GDC. I got to talk to a ton of interesting people at GDC. That's one of the most fun things about being there, reaching out, spending 30 minutes, an hour. I had enough espressos to make the people of Italy proud. I wanted to record some of those conversations. People say interesting things. I think those things should scale beyond just the one person listening. And with their permission, I present to you a bunch of different conversations, some long, some short. Without further ado, here's GDC bonus episode, Game Economist Cast. Let's start with utility. I don't understand what it even means. Everybody has some kind of utils in their head that they're calibrating. There's hardly anything that hasn't been used for money. In fact, there may be a fundamental problem in modeling that we don't want to model. I'm here with Henry. What's up? What's your company? Company is Peanut Game. We run a Web3 gaming studio, a bunch of free-to-play games that we're building right now. What we're trying to do here, A, I feel like I've been in the Web3 industry for so long that I'm not losing touch of what's actually going on in the game industry. So that's one. B, we are starting our private round raise. And we had a bunch of setups of meetings with investors and old friends. What are the investors trying to ask you? Oh, actually, they're asking us, what is the appeal of the Web3 part? They're very curious about how this is going to work because for them, they want a completely seamless process where they don't even have to think about the blockchain. That's the thing that we realize, and that's what we're doing. You can just be really simple. Even a five-year-old can just access it. They don't even need to know the blockchain. What do you think is a product that's executing on this right now? I shit a lot on the Web3 gaming space. Oh, yeah. we do. <laughs> we all do. But it's ironic because I'm in it, right? But I believe that was, we're so early. To answer your question, no. I haven't seen any things. So I hear this a lot. It's so early. Is it going to be early? When does this get mature? I have a very controversial stance on this. I think we're 10 years too early. You think it's going to be 10 years in just infrastructure development to make this? Uh, I think 10 years till it's actually when everyone gets it. Is crypto market growing or does it take market share from everyone else? I don't think it's taking. I'm biased. If you ask me, I don't see it taking. I think it's actually giving value to other industries because it's giving them a different revenue source. It's also growing their market share as well because it's a whole new audience. You're combining a lot of different aspects and also gamers are just growing every year. Henry, it's been great to talk to you. Can I download a game for you in the App Store? Yes. What do I search for in the App Store? Our most basic MVP version, completely private just to our community, but you can download now. It's called Mini Bots on the App Store. Feel free to try it. Join our Discord community and give us feedback. We're open to hearing all types of feedback. Thanks. I'm sure. here with Essen Nanji. I recently just left Epic after 15 years at EA on their biggest franchises, FIFA, Battlefield, within their central tech team, basically supporting every other piece of tech that they, every other studio that they work with. My marketplace system that I built now in Apex in oh. every other game, oh. supporting every other version of Battlefield, every other version of Need for Speed. So here's my hot take. Actually knowing how to build and plan a live content schedule that's post-release is the next step of being production. So their production attention to how you're going to launch and then how you're actually going to have a content workflow and pipeline that lets you sustainably build and fill your players' expectations is 
the next major area that people are going to need to start thinking about. So is that a process or is it like a piece of technology that I personally think it's a bit of both. So the process side one is just people caring about it. The number of times I got called in when I was at EA on, hey, this team needs help figuring out their live team. And I go in and go, what's your live team? They're like, we don't know. We're going on to the next project. I'm like, no wonder your live plan is not going to work. They come from console. They come from mostly console and PC. So a lot of these big legacy teams are always focused on moving people onto the next project. And as a result, there are life plans and never quite go as smoothly as they think it will. They're not right? into commitment. They're, hey, we got this thing done. Exactly. Later. And by the time you figure out, oh, it's either great and we need to now feed the beast, it's too late. You don't have anything in your pipeline and you're screwed. What is the piece of tech you could build around this? Is it a workflow tool? Is it just in-housing more of the supply chain? It's actually about what is the value prop for your game. So the number of studios I know that work on narrative tech, where the narrative is so completely baked into the actual final executable that they have little flexibility in what they can do to build more narrative quickly and efficiently after that. Adding quests, adding missions. You just saw a couple of days ago, just yesterday, Respawn Madison, Wisconsin has just been announced. Yeah. Three studios. Three studios to work on Apex. Unbelievable. And what is the criticism of Apex since the day it got launched? Didn't have enough live content. Because it's really expensive for them. And the model that they have, where a lot of their units of retention yep. are built on massive characters, which for them take a Very really, expensive. really long time to build. We have to ask, what's the AI angle, if any? Is there a role that it can play in the pipeline? Because it doesn't need to own everything. It can own something. It can I do think, something better. I think there's a lot of things that AI can do. So we've seen in experiments that we've run in previous roles that I've had, yep. things like style transfer. Yep. Hey, automatically transition this entire level from this style mm. to this style in an intelligent manner that considerably reduces the art production costs, the lighting costs, all of that stuff, so that you can still get a similar looking level or a similar playing level that can be reconfigured but it's now actually made to your game spec because it's actually using good data as an input. Yeah. So I think AI has a huge role to play. Procedural generation for like content and quests and stuff. You've seen things like the Nemesis system in Shadow of Mordor, which works great at constantly producing replayable content. Bringing something like that into a live game, hugely valuable. Out of curiosity, for a AAA game, and I'm obviously coming from mobile, my assumption is, so you want all these tools to build post-game content for live maintenance, but I'm just thinking like most of those, I assume most of those players just want like the PVP element. They don't actually want more campaign. Like, uh, what is the division? Do actually people want more of that kind of edit and single really, player campaign? It really depends on what the game is itself. So okay. for example, if the game is Assassin's Creed, Assassin's Creed doesn't have PVP. The person who is going to an Assassin's Creed is there for story, quest-based, PVE. So for them, that's the kind of content that makes sense. For a game like a Battlefield where it's more PVP, then that makes more sense for them. The thing I think that you see now is like the super mega titles, the Call of Duties, which have multiple modes that are meant to hit as many parts of the market as humanly possible. The PvE campaign fans, the PvP fans, everyone. They are the ones who really struggle with having enough content in all of those areas. Call of Duty does an awesome job, more PvP content, but if any, if there's anyone who doesn't buy, if only buys it for the campaigns, they drop out the moment they're done the campaign. So they're not staying engaged. They're waiting for next year's Call of Duty. Jeez. And there's nothing that actually transitions anyone from one side to the other or encourages them to pick up and play the other parts of the game that they might not be right now. Okay, so one of those games you just mentioned that has a little something for everyone. Yes. Obviously, if they were going to make live maintenance and have to cover every facet, that is a huge amount of work. Yes. So how would you advise them to prioritize? I would advise them to basically take a long-term view and figure out what is the thing that they can do to efficiently provide content in each of those areas. 
I think an example that gets really broadly overlooked across the games industry, and Phil knows this really well, is FIFA drives almost all of its in-game content, and he's probably the absolute best about this, with tools. If you look at what FIFA Ultimate Team is able to do, and you said, how many people are in their live content team? Five people. So them producing all of their events, sales, promotions, everything, all those cards, it's about five people plus a couple of people who are involved in data collection. And by the way, in those five, I'm including ours. So basically they're magicians. They are magicians. They figured out, <laughs> let's generate content with tools and have a data-driven game. And that's the thing that gives them a real competitive edge. That's very cool. Hello, my name is Neil Long. I run mobilegamer.biz. What's my hot take? My hot take is that American toilets are repulsive. Not just San Francisco toilets. Oh, it's uh, just toilets. appalling. Yeah, yeah I've seen like them. really... Yeah, you've literally seen some shit. <laughs> Another thing I saw earlier today is a guy clipping his toenails right. in the cubicle next to me. So this wasn't even on the streets of San Francisco. No, this is cubicle. like in in the cubicle yeah. near the press room earlier today, a man clipping his toenails. Why are you taking toenail clippers yeah. to GDC? Which series of events happens so yeah. that you're clipping your toenails in the toilets of GDC? Do you mind introducing yourselves? Justin Varghese, Director of Business Development at Wisdom Gaming. And what does Wisdom Gaming do? Wisdom Gaming is a production and activation facility based out in Minneapolis in the Mall of America. We have an 18,000 square foot facility where we do everything from takeovers all the way to high level productions for folks like Riot Games and Odyssey Interact. Basically, our pitch is very simple. You come with an idea, whether it's cultivating it and creating a, an esports ecosystem all the way to creating compelling content that mm. involves influencers for yep. game launches. And we execute that from start to finish to make it so that it's super simple. So you're yeah. talking about esports earlier. One of the things I told you I was struggling with is my inability to find an entry point into esports. Yes. So I've been watching a lot of Drive to Survive on Netflix. Oh, it's got an F1. How do I get into esports? Yeah, and I'm so glad you brought up Drive to Survive because yes. it's the perfect use case, right? It's got me an F1. What American and yeah. F1, it's wild. One thing I want to d- lean in on, especially because of your experience with Drive to Survive, is the content problem. Yeah. Right? I think esports tenly does a very bad job of speaking to the uninitiated. And what I mean by that is when you look at most esports, the convert in regards to the number of people that own the game to the number of people that watch that game's esports is very small. And this is like about as easy of a sell as it is, right? You're playing the game. Here's the game at the highest level. Watch it so you can be a better player. And yet for whatever reason, esports doesn't do a good job. And I think a lot of that is because the industry is very bad at telling stories that resonate with people who don't know what esports is. It can, it's a trip to Wonderland, right? Where usually like for me, like I had somebody guide me through the rabbit hole. When I was there, I was in it, right? But What we need here are more pieces similar to Drive to Survive, right? Where you're able to come in with no perspective whatsoever. And because you're given this really deep, intimate look at the players, you're understanding why it's more than just pixels, you get super invested. And looking at Drive to Survive is like a use case, right? If you look at the interest of F1 in the States before 2018 and after, it's skyrocketed. Yeah. And it's literally because of that one content piece. And esports is still, I think every esports team and every esports organization is still waiting on like 
that moment. So people need to tell better stories. You exactly. think you need to make this more yeah. captivating. Yeah, yeah. Right. I, I think that we've taken, there's been a lot of shortcuts. You know, one yep. thing I've been a little critical of in the past is say maybe like a, a model where the shortcut to that is just slapping a city name onto mm-hmm. on, onto a, a team and then being like, we've done it. We're reaching Gen Pop. Yep. And that's not really accurate. Yep. I think that only whenever you can tell great stories and make it relatable to truly show the gap that exists between like your average player and a top level pro, like that's the only way you can get more people to buy it. I'm here with Meet Golkin of the infamous Vader Research. Do you mind introducing yourself? I work as an economic design consultant. I'll think WebTree builds sustainable economies, builds economies that align incentives across different stakeholders. How is the Web3 presence bad? Are people showing up? I was here last year as well. And there were a lot of projects, but this year it's just a lot of Web3 projects. Anything that stood out to you? Any interesting things? No, I think the Web3 guys spent a lot of money to get the best. Who was the most impressive Web3 bull? I think the Avalanche. I'm, I'm with you on that yeah. one. Yeah. It's got that big circle, circular like yeah. banner. It's got yeah. a nice big green gaming chairs. Exactly. And other than that, there are like there are a lot of interesting game projects. But who knows which, who knows whether Web3 gaming is whether it's going to be a big market as expected or whether it will stay as a relatively smaller niche that when I say small, maybe as a market size, market value might get big, Yep. but in terms of the size of the audience, it might stay small. As we're having conversations with these smart people like you, I am leaning towards more the latter. Oh, it stays as a small audience do you think ai is like the bigger story coming out of gdc yeah definitely i haven't seen as much integration of web3 and ai as i expected yeah. i thought that would be like a double buzzword but it feels like the temperatures kind of cooled a little bit there are, there are like a few there's actually one like very well venture backed company i do have to ask yeah. has there been a good party you've been to what has been the best party <laughs> You've been to. Yeah, I haven't been to the party. I was like at bed by 10.30. Boom. Waking up at 6, 7 and having meetings all day. When you talk to the different people here, particularly with the VCs, are there anything that like they're finding interesting? Any questions that they're trying to have answered? Yeah, I think there's a narrative around building games for the high out to the audience, for the small high out to the audience. That is, I think realistically, VCs, Mepsi Gaming VCs have realized that play games are probably gonna it's not gonna be that easy for AAA a games to be successful because they're gonna be competing with free-to-play competitors in addition to having the struggle to build a very sophisticated complex economy which is tough so what we're seeing more is these game studios or these i don't know web you publisher projects and already have an existing audience of high ltna users which are we still mind spending money on risky volatile assets mm. that might fluctuate in price. <laughs> Do you find that they're well, dedicated to Web3? Is there anything preventing a Web3 VC from saying, hey, we were interested in more traditional gaming? Or is that just counter to their thesis? That's, that was tough because when they raised capital, capital from LPs, they raised with the narrative of investing in Web3. And it might be tough even like from a legal perspective. But also, I think Web3 Gaming provides early liquidity because yep. of the token aspect and VCs. Turns out cash, cash is good. Cash is king. <laughs> exactly. To meet you. Good luck in Istanbul, yeah. the safe flight home. Yeah.
I'm Kelly. I'm a project manager in the video game industry. So first GDC, first GDC favorite moment, favorite last GDC. day. At GDC, I learned a little bit about work of my of the talks, but also all about myself and the type of game that I like. Are you into Enjoyed... crypto now? No, I'm not into crypto. <laughs> I really enjoy like cozy game. And I've heard that there is a genre of it, which is called Wholesome Games. And I, did, I wasn't aware of it. So now I know a little bit more about it. Hello. I'm Hi. Jose. Hi, Jose. Well, Jose, where do you work? Well, at Behavioral Interactive, head of product strategy. And what has been your favorite talk this GDC? I think there have been a couple which were really interesting. One oh. was discussing about how do you build events connected to emotion? Because the game well, is very much about emotion. And then well. you don't want to make just any other event. Here is your cosmetic, here is your thing, etc. So how do you make events which connect well with what yeah. they were trying to achieve with the mm -hmm. game, which is this child-like, childhood memories which are trying to build. They build some cool stuff from music, for example, well. where you build those activities, where you have a kind of... A, uh, a memory of the events that you are going to keep forever. So they did something pretty cool. When you go back to your roadmap, is it going to look like a mood board in the future? I, I don't know, but there is another one, another talk that I did, which was from the team working on Dauntless. And it was about 10 service lessons that they learned. Yep. And they mentioned, for example, this Knockout City interview example, which yeah. was all about a cosmetic type of economy. Mm. is all about scale. And ultimately thinking about Sky, I'm thinking about Dunsless. What it gets to me is you need to understand what game you have in your head. We're just trying to take all the best practices which exist and do cosmetic store and an event and a battle pass in there and that. Because if you don't have game for all those things, don't play those things. And you try to understand what your game is about. Now that was good. So my name is Stan Fawn, CEO of Beta Hat. We're a consumer insights agency based in Oakland, California, working on games and technology. Anything interesting you've overheard at GDC? Some of the more interesting things I've heard about is a shift back into AAA publishing, being front and center. Less talk about Web3, less talk about crypto. I was expecting to hear more about generative AI. Maybe it's too early. I don't know if it's too early. Although, where I have heard about generative AI is when you have Google board throwing a lot of the buzzwords around and combining everything together and saying Web3 and generative AI in the same sentence, and I've heard that a lot. Do you have any hot takes coming out of this? <laughs> yeah, as a researcher, I'm just listening. Has there been anything that's stuck with you as a researcher? What I have seen is a renewed interest around understanding player, a lot of interest around UX research. And some of my colleagues who are in the UX space who are doing talks on the UX or hosting events, those have all sold out. Why do you think it's driving that? Why would people going back to UX now? I think the UX to me is essentially an insurance policy that you're going in the right direction. Okay. Yeah. My guess is in a period where it costs a lot more to borrow money or it costs a lot more to develop something and there is more risk aversion. I think UX research or research plays a larger role in making sure that you're going in the right direction so that you're not losing added money over time. So I think just having confidence in the decisions that we're making, I think has more value today. Do you think people want to fail faster almost? I think in some ways, yes, but I think they want, if they do fail faster, they want to feel that is, that was backed by some type of information okay. that gives them the confidence. That was the right move to make. 
data-driven, empirically driven. Maybe there's science as a buzzword. I hate the word data-driven, yeah, but they, I think empirically driven. I love it. Better. Love it. I love it. I'm on that train too. Totally. Cool beans. How can people reach you? And they can reach out to me over LinkedIn. You can just find me under Stan Kwan. My company name is Beta Hat, B E T A H A T. Also, my email address is Stan Beta Hat M R dot com. And we also have a website. We should teach this to our children. Economics, economics is major. major, major. Everyone has to major in economics. Number one for personal survival. Economics, economics is major.